purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And what that it means is that, you know, normally we don't take on, you know, um, life altering endeavors until we have something happen to us and something gets personal. Jeff Johnston has experienced compound loss. First, his 23-year-old son to fentanyl poisoning in 2016, and now, most recently, his wife of 21 years to addiction. But Jeff is living undeterred by loss, doing what he can to change the narrative in this country when it comes to mental health, overdose, and addiction. Jeff is launching the Living Undeterred Tour this spring, where he hopes to raise awareness and bring people together all working toward a common goal. Emily's Hope has joined forces as the South Dakota partner for the cross-country tour. Jeff has written a book, This One's For You. He also writes a blog and hosts the Living Undeterred podcast. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. I was so grateful that you reached out to me to tell me about your Living Undeterred tour and then I just learning a little bit more like you, I instantly felt this connection with you. Yeah, a- Angela, it's great to be on, on the show and talk to your followers and your listeners about, um, unfortunately, you and I are, you know, members of a club that we didn't ask to join and um, certainly one we can never leave. Um, and there's a lot of um, similarities between between you and I in a lot of ways. And I think we're going to navigate through a lot of these different things and how how we're coping with survival and, and even more and and also helping other people deal with these things. And unfortunately, I'd like to say, and I'm sure you would agree that the numbers look favorable to get better, but they don't. They certainly don't. I know. It's that was my my biggest goal in embarking on this journey was to try to prevent this from happening to other families. You and I know how how devastating it is. And it, it's like a bomb being dropped in the middle of your family. And Unfortunately, we've just seen overdose numbers skyrocket during the pandemic. 100,000 people died of overdose in 2020. Mm-hmm. It's like 274 people every day. Mm-hmm. And that it's just, it's frustrating because I feel like I'm out shouting from the rooftops. I'm sure you feel the same way, yet the issue continues. Yeah, you know, it's it's unfortunate because, um, you know, you and I are specifically drawn to the opioid um, poisoning, we call it now. And I see the media is really making a good effort and taking the word overdose off the table because that's what it is. It's it's a murder. It's it's poisoning. Um, certainly, Emily and Seth didn't plan to die the day that they did. Um, and, um, you know, going back to uh, what's happening with the emphasis on the opioid uh, epidemic, but I do think there's a bigger issue here, and I think you would agree, is that this is a, a national, it's a, it's a global, it's a human mental health challenge. It's an, it's an issue. And if you think of uh, the opioid overdose, or, oh, oh, sorry, I just said poisoning, and then I just said overdose. It's going to take a while for me to get that verbiage out of my vocabulary. But, um, but, you, but you look at uh, the emphasis on, 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 um, on, on um, opioids and we kind of tend to uh, maybe forget about some of the other issues that are out there, like the 95,000 people a year die from alcoholism. Um, the, the one in four, I think women and one in six boys that are sexually molested, um, you know, the suicidal ideation, the depression, you know, all, all the stuff that's out there that, that is on top of the opioid over uh, opi- opioid epidemic. And it's like, where, where we go wrong as a society. I mean, we are such an abundant society. We have everything at our fingertips yet. We are, we're, we're missing something. We're, we're trying to fill gaps and voids in our lives with drugs and alcohol. And, 
uh, that's, I don't know, it's, I'm not saying it's, it's nihilistic in a way, but it certainly is not, um, it's not something you get excited about. And I think you and I are out there being vulnerable, telling our story. And sometimes I wonder if it's making a difference. And I, I know it is, but I'm too impatient like you. I want to see the numbers start getting better today, you know? And I know in individuals that you and I have both made a yeah. difference in telling our stories and in trying to help other people. There's, and I always say also, as, as much as I want to help everybody and just put an end to this epidemic, I really know that if just one life is saved, yeah, then yeah. we will have done the right thing. Tell me about Seth. I, I really want to hear about Seth. He was 23 years old. Yeah, Seth's, Seth's journey started at 16, actually at 15, Angela, when he was prescribed Stratera for hyperactivity, which is insane. I mean, I was as hyper as any kid out there. I, I have attention deficit. I took the last D off because it's not a disorder. It's a, it can be a superpower if harnessed the correct way. So I don't even call it ADD anymore. It's attention deficit. But at fifth grade, Somehow my wife and I went in and we were having issues with his attention or the teachers were making comments. And so he took Stratera, which I think at the time is, or was an FDA approved, um, you know, similar to like Adderall, but it was given to fifth and sixth graders. And then at 16, he was actually given Adderall. And that, that's really where we started seeing problems. And, you know, at that point, Seth was going through a lot of experimental stages, like a lot of adolescents do. Um, They're trying alcohol, like, like I did. And, I never did drugs, so I can't really, I can't understand from that perspective, but I've, uh, I've been around it in other ways, but so he started experimenting with marijuana, you know, played guitar. I coached him in basketball. He was a tremendous basketball player, um, you know, coached him for a lot of years, just like every kid out there, just like with Emily, just lots of upside, lots of potential, but they had their adolescent challenges like we all did. And, you know, he found, he found solace in escaping with drugs and alcohol. And so it went from, you know, innocent, you know, beers at a football game to getting drunk, you know, five nights a week. And then the marijuana thing, you know, it's legal in half the country, dad, it's no big deal. You know, everyone's doing it. It's like, well, doesn't mean you have to do it just because something's legal. I mean, that's, that's the insanity of this stuff. I don't care if heroin was legal. I still wouldn't do it. I mean, and I think we need to understand that some of these drugs possibly will be legal down the road and we need to, we need to embrace this with our kids. But going back to Seth, so he was given Adderall and then experimented with um, marijuana and his drinking got really bad. And then cocaine was introduced. And then he actually uh, was incarcerated uh, in, in, he was in, in prison. He was incarcerated a number of times, drunk drivings and things like that, breaking and entering. And then he got in a fight with somebody and stabbed somebody and, and went to prison. And I thought, you know, like a lot of parents and Angela, I'm sure you had this with Emily's like, maybe this is rock bottom. Maybe this is what everyone talked about. You know, maybe this is the, he walks out of there and the light, the clouds part and the lights come down. And all of a sudden he's like, I'm a new man. And, you know, I, I saw him regularly in prison, you know, and I was one of the only ones that went down there. Most of his friends just disappeared, but um, he got out. And within two months um, he was dead within two months. Um, And, you know, I found a way, and I write about this in my book, and, and I know it's similar to what you've talked about. I found a way to become a better man, a better person, not a bitter person. And I think there is a, there's a story in everything. There, there's, there's something we can, there's an opportunity in every worst case scenario for us. I mean, I, I mean, there has to be. What other choice is there? And unfortunately, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but unfortunately, 
my wife and I, at the time Seth died, we immediately went downhill. We drank. I mean, I, we both tried to pretty much drink ourselves to death. I was a functional alcoholic for 30 something years. And that's not that unusual, Jeff, that people um, who experience horrible trauma turn to substances themselves. I mean, that is a fairly typical scenario. Yeah, I, I really didn't know how to handle it. And I really was worried about my other two boys. At the time, Ian was um, uh, 14 and Roman was 12 when Seth died, um, their older brother. And my wife and I just, you know, went, I didn't, I think I just shut myself in the house for six months. And my wife and I just, you know, played this massive pity party every day and listened to sad music. And I just didn't see a way out of it. And this time I was 52 years old at this time. And so I made a decision on December 24, 2017, like a lot of people, that was kind of the day where I had my, my epiphany, Angela. And I said, I'm done tired of being tired. I'm tired of excuses. I'm tired of living depressed. I'm tired of being miserable. And I just quit drinking. And be honest with you, it's been the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. I haven't had a drink. I, I don't think about it. Uh, I don't count. I don't keep score. I, 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 I've kind of tricked my brain to play different narratives that normal alcoholics deal with, um, you know, and, and my wife, unfortunately, um, dealt with grief a different way. And she died June 29th of last year. Um, we married 21 years and she was 46 years old. So, you know, I've lost a son and a wife in the last five years. And my wife was a freaking rock star. She was just super mom. She was beautiful. She was vibrant. She was, you know, what you read about everybody who walks into a room and lights the room up, but grief, you know, for some people, the mountain of grief is just too tall to climb. And, you know, I don't know how to talk about my wife without sounding like I'm throwing her under the bus. But I think for me to change a narrative and to make people realize that drinking is not the solution to your trauma, I have to bring it up and, you know, and, and be a little bit careful about some of the personal stuff. But the bottom line is, is that um, I've lost two people to this crap. And uh, between you and I, we've lost, we've lost a lot. And, I think you said, what is it? 280 people a day? 274. Yes. They're getting that call, you know, and just in Iowa, the opioid over, I'm from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, so I'm not far from you, but the opioid overdoses are up 35% from last year. You know, just, just that to think of alcoholism and all these other issues. And it's like, you know, so here we are, you and I do podcasts, you and I talk to people. And I think it's a combination of we do want to give back, but I think we're also trying to help ourselves, Angela. I mean, I know I benefit a lot talking to people like you. It, it makes it makes me get my days better. Well, first of all, Jeff, I want to tell you how sorry I am for the loss of your son and the loss of your wife. I wrote a blog called Collateral Damage, and I really believe that uh, you know, it's like a ripple effect in a pond when a stone gets thrown in. Mm-hmm. If you think of the the overdose death or the poisoning death. And you just don't know what the fallout is going to be. I had a friend, part of this club, that, as you said, nobody wants to join and nobody can leave, who completed suicide Mm. just a a year ago. And our children had died at the same time of overdose. And, um, you know, she left behind a husband and a granddaughter she was raising. And I, I just think people need to understand that when this happens, 
it's not just like, oh, that person's gone and everybody just goes on because not everybody can. I mean, I admire you. I admire everything you're doing. I think there's an inner strength. I went through a lot of adversity as a child, and I don't know if that's where my inner strength comes from. Um, But not everybody is the same and not everyone can find that, you know, to carry on. And, and I feel so bad for people like your wife, um, people Mm, like my friend. I mean, I just, and I, and I, and then here you are left holding the bag, so to speak, you know, you've got to carry on. And I agree with you. I, I think helping others helps me more than anything else that I can do. Um, finding purpose in the pain. I always say that finding purpose in the pain is my jam. That's what I do. Uh, That's why Mm -hmm. I do the podcast. That's why I write the blogs. That's why I run a charity. Um, But it doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean that Mm -hmm. that you you don't have your moments. And I thank you. I mean, I just want to thank you for everything you're doing and say, I admire how well you're doing today, even though the loss of your wife was not that long ago. Yeah, it was just seven months ago, but because I saw her go downhill so fast for three years, you know, I've had a I've had a little bit of preconditioning for this event happening. But you know, what I've learned from this is um purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. That's like my big, my big quote that I actually have our new t-shirts in, and that's my quote on the back. Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And what that it means is that, you know, normally we don't take on, you know, um, life altering endeavors until we have something happen to us and something gets personal, like a Alzheimer's to your parents. And all of a sudden now you're an Alzheimer's advocate or your wife gets breast cancer. Now you're like raising money for breast cancer awareness. And and that's kind of how it works. You know, that's how we can't, you know, save everybody and get involved in every project. But in my case, I've had substance abuse and be honest with you, it's probably a mental illness issue with my wife and my son that, that, you know, ultimately led to them trying to fill those gaps. But, you know, I write a lot about in my book, um, this one's for you, an inspirational journey through addiction, death and meaning, which I'll, I'll send you out a copy and they're available on uh, all the platforms. And then I also just completed the audio book too, which is in my voice. I thought That's it was very important. Yeah, it was tough. It took me about three or four months because there was times I actually had to leave the studio because I hadn't read the book in over a year. And I just, I wanted to be honest and authentic with my passion. I didn't want to just read it to read it. So when I felt like I wasn't in it, I just left the studio. And I want to um, let people know that we will put in the show notes to your website and links mm-hmm. to your book and your podcast and everything else as well. But Angela, there's a moment in the book that I think is the pivot moment. That's kind of where uh, everything in my life since then has really took form. Uh, even my nonprofit is called the Choices Network. And it's it's not about sober living and clean living and don't do drugs. It's about choices. It's about, you know, choices precede consequences. So if you want to stay out of jail, you got to make the choices not to get there. If you don't want to get drunk driving, you got to make the choices not to get there. So there's a there's a part in the book. Do you, do you do I have a few minutes to share this story real of quick? Of course. For you? Please do. This, this is an important story because when Seth died, it was the day of districts for my middle son, who's a college golfer. Actually, he's at University of South Dakota. He's a coyote. So, um, so uh, we're big coyotes over here. So <laughs> that's awesome. Well, actually, and I worked in Cedar Rapids for my first job at KGAN TV. So we have these connections. We do. We do. So go yotes. So, but no, so my son was getting ready to golf and I was taking my, my son to the, to the um, school here to drop him off. He was a sophomore in high school and my wife was getting ready back at home. And then uh, that morning I was taking the clubs out of the back of the bag and or the back of the car and um, the phone rang and I picked it up. And that's when I was told they found Seth in a hotel room in his chair, slumped over, um, tourniquet laying on the bed, um, you know, with his belt and he was dead from a heroin overdose. 
and from there, you know, everything goes so fast. I'm sure you can recall the, the, the moment in time, you know, when you got that call or how you found out it's, it's like frozen. It's like fossilized in your, in your soul, you know? And I remember thinking to myself, how am I going to present this? You know, it was hard enough to go home and tell my wife, you know, I was just, you know, I, it's just indescribable. Um, and then I thought, well, how am I going to tell Seth's little brothers, you know, that just admired his big brother? looked up to him. How am I going to tell him my brother's dad? So I called my dad, my dad's a doctor. And he said, Jeff, I got two things to tell you, tell him the truth and then shut your mouth. And my dad's mm -hmm. delivered many bad news to many people about, about death being a doctor. And I said, okay. So I got there and they came off the bus and they were all excited about, you know, their day. And I sat them down and said, boys, I got some really bad news for you. And, and um, I said, your brother's dead. And just like my dad said, I just stopped talking. You know, I, I want to be Dr. Phil. I want to solve everything. You know, I want to just talk, talk, talk. I stopped. And my middle son looked up and said, how'd he die, dad? Drugs? I said, yeah, drugs. And then I'd say, what, Angela, something happened. I don't know where this came from. And those people that are overly religious will subscribe it to that. And I'm fine because I don't know where it came from. But something popped in my head and I stood up um, and I said, boys, <laughs> and this is a chapter in my book called The Two Roads. I said, boys, we have two roads to go down. We have one road of despair and, you know, misery, and we'll become alcoholics and addicts ourselves, or we have a road of inspiration and motivation where we can change our lives and the lives of the people road. I ask you to join me. And I sat back down. And what I thought at the moment, why that was powerful was that I wasn't going to tell the boys how to grieve. I was going to show them how to grieve. Now I didn't for the first year. I drank myself to death, literally. So I didn't, I didn't practice what I preached, but ultimately I got out of that with two different things. I write about my meditation, the podcast, the book, all these things got me out of it. But I go back and I told that little bit lengthy story, Angela, because it's important that we all have pivot points in our life. We all have moments where we're going to choose the better road or the bitter road. And that's been kind of my, that's been kind of my thing that's keeping me going now is that, you know, this living undeterred mindset project that I've embarked on is this better, not bitter philosophy, the two roads pivot story. We all have it. You had it. You could have easily have drank yourself to death. You could have, you know, numbed your pain in different ways, but you didn't. You've, you matter of fact, I reached out to you. I think I told you this in 2018, a few months after Emily had died. I think I reached out to you in August. So I saw you on social media and I was two years into this and you were, you were three or four months into it. How, how much further you were ahead than I was. And I'm like, this is a, this is a, you know, I looked up to you, you're a mentor. I'm like, mm. there's another person. There's another Steve Grant out there. There's another person out there. What the hell am I doing sitting around drinking myself to death? So people like you have been an inspiration to me. And I hope to pay that forward. And people hear my story. They can say, well, you know, I still got two of my boys left and my wife's still around me. Who am I to sit around, you know? And right. so there's, there's always a way to look at things differently. Well, thank you for those kind words, Steve. Mm -hmm. I go back to those early days, you know, after Emily died, I took three months off of work. Uh, I always say I had to pick myself up off the floor. Um, but then I realized I had this platform and I could either run and hide from the truth. And that's why I mean, when you talk about what happened with your wife, I think it's so important that we speak the truth. Mm -hmm. And I could, and I, as a journalist, the truth is so important to me, sometimes hard to get to, but I knew I had this platform and I thought I can either tell the truth and tell my story. And I've asked so many people over the years after horrible tragedies to talk to me. 
and to tell me their story in hopes of helping others. And I thought, how could I not? How could I yeah, not? Exactly. And so that is kind of what propelled me early on in the beginning. And I wanted to own our family's story, Emily's story, my story as part of that. I didn't want someone else telling it. I didn't want gossip and rumors. And I wanted to help people. And I just, and I, that was what pushed me forward to do that. So even though I was still, I look back and I think about those early stages and, and I, the stages of grief are not really accurate, but you know no, what I mean? Not. The first, I mean, oh, you're, yeah. just in, yeah. you're just in shock and, right. and half the stuff you do, I don't know that you're making very good decisions early on, but I'm, I'm, I go back and I want to tell my, you know, my old self there, thank you for doing that. Because I, I believe that there are moments in our lives that we could never predict that take us to moments that we could never have imagined, right? So mm. here you and I are right now, neither one of us could ever have imagined that we'd be meeting each other and doing right. this podcast, all right. because of the incredibly painful moments that we could never have imagined. Yeah, I I, I like the way you said that. I, I've got another quote. I have, like you, I have lots of quotes, but one is, pain is unavoidable, but suffering is a choice. And I actually got that kind of out of Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, which is, you know, I think should be required reading for every human on the planet about his times in Auschwitz and the concentration camps about how he kind of just, he got a positive attitude and and that changed everything in his outlook and, um, and focused on what he could control, like the Stoics talk about, you know, focus on things you could control and not spend time on the things you can't control. And so this, this pain is unavoidable. Suffering is a choice. Uh, Victor Frankel said, um, suffering is my opportunity. That was the quote that he said mm-hmm. in the book that that was my aha moment. I'm like, okay, death was presented to me as an opportunity to be a better man. It wasn't a punishment. It wasn't somebody taken from me. You know, instead of addition by subtraction, it was addition by addition. It was my life got better because of what happened to me. Now, someone out there could say, well, well, Jeff, I, I don't know how you could think that way. Well, I don't know other way you can think. I mean, I don't know how you can, I don't know. I joke, I joke a lot about this, Angela. And anyone listening, I don't mean to be offensive, but I joke that I tried depression a few times. I didn't like it. So I quit. And, and it went, and that's just how I think type A people are. It's like, I don't like being down. I don't like being miserable by have to trick my brain and do things that are non, you know, traditional, more and a little bit unique to me. It gets me through the day and I'm 55. I want to, I want to live to be 120, you know, and I want to live good. I want to be evolving each day, shedding my skin, becoming a better human being. I don't want to be sitting around just trying to survive. I don't think you do either. I mean, just by watching what you do is there's no way you're in survival mode. I mean, you have survival moments, but you've ev- you've evolved out of that and you're just doing amazing things. And I'm, I'm real, I'm really, I really admire what you're doing and everybody in this. And one thing, can I throw out real quick? One thing I've noticed, and you and I were talking before we went on this, before we taped, this is like a female dominated uh, area I'm in. I'm in all these chat rooms. I'm in all these Facebook, you know, mother, you know, fentanyl, whatever. And it's, there's not a lot of men and I don't know where the men go in these situations. And it's mostly, it's mostly, you know, moms that are really passionate about out there doing these things. But, you know, Steve Grant and a few other men that I really run into that are doing great things about this. Um, Tim Ryan's another one I met. Uh, he lost his son too. But, but this is, I would say, is like a 75% female dominated space. 
You know, I'm just challenging the dads. You know, where are you? You know, you're no less a dad because they're not here, right? I have some theories about this. Um, Well, first I I wanted to say Viktor Frankl is um, one of my favorite books as well. And I read it after Emily died. And I just, he talks about, you know, it's all about how we frame things in our mind. Mm -hmm. It's all about how we think about things. And um, and he's, he, I mean, everybody, like you said, should read that book, whether you've had a catastrophic loss or right. not. It, I mean, it really puts things in perspective, but also the dominance of women talking about overdose and fentanyl poisoning and all of these things and loss. I think it's because as women, we've always been encouraged to talk about our emotions, show our emotions, mm-hmm. talk about our feelings. And really you know, men are supposed to be stoic and, you know, not, not be vulnerable, And um, that is one thing I heard you on your podcast talking about vulnerability. We all know Brene Brown has, you know, brought this to the uh, forefront of our minds as a culture. But I often wonder, even when I, I, I'm very raw in my blogs, I just, it helps me just to get it all out there to write what I'm feeling. And I often wonder, am I being too vulnerable? But you as a guy, I'm sure even, you know, the pressure is even more on you to maybe not be as vulnerable. Yeah, I wrote a I wrote a blog called My Addiction to Vulnerability. And it was precisely what you just said, because I started getting so consumed with telling my story. And this became a me narrative, not a we narrative. And so one thing I've really been working on, especially with the tour, which I'd like to spend some time before we we end this podcast, is talking about the tour. But I wanted the tour to be a we story type emphasis. And I've learned through vulnerability that it takes me, you know, I, I'm sure you run into this every day. You know, I was the other day I was in an elevator and I was wearing a living undeterred shirt. The guy goes, what's that living undeterred shirt? And I say, well, my son died. My wife died, blah, blah, blah. Like within 30 seconds. And I could see the guy wanting to tell me his story, but then the doors open and his floor was there and he had to leave. And I thought, this is what the tour is all about. I want to get that guy in a room and talk to him for two hours about what he was going to tell me because everywhere I go, I crack that door by telling first what happens to me and people feel that it's okay. It's like a safe space. And so that's what this tour is all about is I want to get, I want to get people talking about this. I don't want to run around telling my story about Seth and my wife, you know, every single moment of every day. That's not what this is about. And I think you probably reach a point where vulnerability can be a little bit, um, you know, challenging and that you're not, you know, too vulnerable. You know, at some point people, do want to move on, you know, with talking about different things. Right. And I always say that um, with them, when it comes to the death of our children and, and your wife, um, you'll never move on, but you can move forward. Yeah. But we'll always yeah. kind of carry that with us. I always say, I'll carry this grief with me. I've learned to really incorporate it in my life in the best way that I can. And mm-hmm. I think that's important for people to understand too, but let's talk about the tour because you reached, so you, you mentioned you reached out to me in 2018 and yeah. that was after I, I was on a lot of national media and I had, I was flooded with emails and phone calls and I tried to answer as many as I could. And sometimes they were short answers. I did go back and find the email that you sent me after you contacted. I'm like, yeah, he did. And I was like, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I didn't really expand. And, and I apologize for that. I was so overwhelmed at the time. no. But now you reached back out to me to talk to me about the Living Undeterred Tour. Can you explain to our listeners what that is? Yeah. And the story was I was on my elliptical running back in, um, in, in May of last year. And 
I got off my elliptical and I jumped on Twitter and I saw this guy riding across the state that he lived in, raising money for his wife's breast cancer awareness. And, you know, I, I have imposter syndrome. I'm, I'm competitive, you know, like everybody. I, I thought, well, I can do that too, you know? And I thought, well, I was too small and I don't, I don't want to ride a bike. So I stayed up till three in the morning and I, desi- I designed this plan where I was going to go up to Camping World in Waterloo, Iowa the next day. And I was going to buy an RV and I want to drive around the United States and raise a million dollars. Now, am, am I insane? I have no idea. I, I mean, I, I had like 5,000 in my nonprofit at the time. So 5,000 to a million is a pretty big jump. And I thought, you know, but if I don't buy the RV, and I don't make myself accountable. I'm not going to do this. It's that crazy of a hairy, audacious goal that I won't do it. And so I did. I went up to Camping World. I, I, I brought up my little presentation. I, I sold them on this idea. And sure enough, they, they knocked it. They gave me a really good deal on a 35-foot RV. So then I've never even been in an RV. You know, I've never, <laughs> I've never, I've never, never been in one. So now I'm like, hey, what the hell am I going to do now? And then I, I told uh, one of my great friends, Antarctic Mike, and you'll have to meet him. He's part of our tour. Um, and he goes by Mike Pierce, but his, his thing's Antarctic Mike. And I said, and I told Molly, I said, you know, and my thing was, Angela, I was going to do this in July. So I bought the RV in May. I was going to drive around the country like two months later. And Molly's quote was, Jeff, I will kill you if you do this in two months. And then Mike's like, no, Jeff, Jeff, you, you got to slow down. This is a great idea, but you got to be intentional. You have to do this with a purpose, you know? So I said, okay. So I put that on the back burner and we moved it to now it's May 9th of this year. So I'm only 90 days out now. And that's when I reached out to you because, well, here's, here's the idea of the tour. It's called the Living Undeterred U.S. Tour, raising, um, ch- I'm sorry, changing the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. That's, that's the objective. And what I'm going to do is on May 7th, I'm leaving Cedar Rapids. I'm going to Des Moines. And you are my actual first stop. South Dakota is our first state on the tour. Fantastic. The tour, yeah, the tour is over three stages. I'm doing about 16 days nonstop, coming back for about two weeks. My son has high school graduation. And I'm going on a fishing trip with my two boys that I cannot miss for anything. I'm going back on the tour, doing the whole East Coast for like three weeks, come back for another eight days, revamp. And then we do the whole South. So it's 95 to 100 days. We're going to every single state. And what we've done is I initially, Angela was going to do the opioid awareness tour, but in talking to people, they're like, no, Jeff, you need to, you need to think bigger than just your story. So that's why this is a mental health initiative. And now if you look at mental health is one of the biggest Google names on the internet right now. And, yeah. and really that's what, that's what Emily had, Seth had, and Prudence had. They, they had mental health issues right. that, that they, men- they went... Yeah. Yeah. They want the drugs right. and alcohol to mask it. Right. So mental, yeah. Mental health and addiction go hand in hand and people are, mm-hmm. us- are usually self-medicating in some way. Are they, they want, I always say that Emily um, was a sensitive soul dealing with a broken world. And mm-hmm. so pain and even love, I mean, sometimes all of it is just too much for sensitive people. Well, she was and- an artist. She was an artist. Mm-hmm. That, that, that shows her sensitivity. Most artists are very, right. you know, very connected to nature and stuff like that. Right. And I just think that um, drugs and alcohol can be effective until they're not right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, they, they right. can be effective until they aren't anymore. And then they're, they, they're, they're very painful. And it, it's, it's just heading down a road that people shouldn't go on because ultimately it leads to death. But so you contacted me and you're going to, I know you said South Dakota is going to be your first stop. You're mm-hmm. going to go to 16 States. What do you want to accomplish at each stop of the living undeterred tour? 
That's a great question. We have the tour broken into two types of participants. There's our state partners, and that's what that's what you'll be kind of helping me identify. The state partners are going to be, and because I can't go to eight different stops in each state, uh, we're only picking one stop per state. So you know your your uh, relationship and and our stop will be our only one in South Dakota. And uh, some other states like California and Florida, we're going to do two stops. But what the goal is, is we're going to pull up in the RV. It's going to be fully wrapped, living on the tour, U.S. tour. Um, the state partners are going to be responsible for providing a venue. So I got to have a place to park the RV. We're going to do presentations so you and I can speak together about our story. Uh, we both have our own nonprofits that we can, we can promote and talk about. Uh, and then we want to do a panel discussion where we want to have you and I and maybe some other um maybe some clinicians on that side of the fence can talk about mental health, substance abuse, and, and, and um, addiction, kind of like a town hall concept. That's kind of my thought. And then I just go on to the next state and we do this, we do this for 95 days and I want to raise a million dollars. And what the goal is, Angela is half of the money. I want to give back to the 50 or 60 state partners. And the other half is going into my nonprofit, the choices network. And that's to help adolescents make better choices with drugs and alcohol. So that's the state partners. And we're still looking, we have like, 24 states or 25 states still open. So people who want to get involved that follow you, uh, you know, I know we're looking at North Dakota, we're looking at Nebraska, Wyoming, Utah. So there's some areas, states over by South Dakota that if you know of anybody in the mental health, substance abuse or addiction space, I'd be happy to hook them up with our two staff people that we have working on the tour. Then the other part of the tour is where the money is and that's the sponsors. Those are the tour sponsors. That's corporate America, People will want their name on the RV. I mean, we're going for 95 days around the United States. Think of the millions and millions of eyeballs are going to see that wrap on that RV. And so there is definitely an advantage for sponsors to get involved in this. Anybody that caters to sober living, uh, clean lifestyles, you know, exercise people, mindfulness, things like that. We want to try to bring the forefront. So this is I made a comment the other day. Someone said, well, Jeff, when you're out preaching to everybody about what you did, and I said, hold on, I, I'm not preaching. This is an exploration. This is not a presentation. I got more questions and I do answers. I'm just a dad from Iowa in an RV with my two boys and a guy that you know ran two marathons on Antarctica. And I'm going to go around. I'm going to try to find questions in these answers. And then at the end of the tour, we're going to have resources available for people to, to get more help. Yeah, I wanted to know ultimately what your objective is uh, raising awareness, of course, mm -hmm. stopping stigma. I mean, I think, yeah, I think we're just heading down that road and, and yeah. I, I really saving, hopefully saving lives. I mean, once you get the information out to people and the resources, you know, you hope that that will lead to saving lives. Yeah. The, the objective is at the end to put everything together and have some type of resource available, whether that's a, a company or an online platform or something where um, people like you and I, I know when Seth first started going down these roads, I had no idea what to do, Angela. <gasps> yeah, yeah. Shit, so I asked hard. my dad, so do, I hard. Call, do I call the cops? Do I call a psychologist? Do I, call I did all that. Do I, call, I did yeah, all I did that. too. <laughs> call my neighbors. I like, yeah. I don't know. I ignored it. I, I, I over, overdid it. I, overdid I, had, it, yeah. I had no idea what to do. It was, there was just no, no template. And now we have all this, all this uh, data out there from, you know, brain restoration uh, research to psychedelic research, to meditation, to all these really innovative alternatives. I mean, obviously if things were working 
and all these numbers were heading in the right direction, you know, I, I probably wouldn't even be doing the tour, right? but they are but every, everything's going in the wrong direction. I can tell you that one thing that Emily's hope is doing that I'm very passionate about, just like you're passionate about your RV tour is that we are designing prevention curriculum starting in the elementary schools. In fact, we're, we're piloting it next fall in a third grade classroom and we've got an animated series. We are going to have a book to accompany it because I really think if you can teach not scare kids, but in age appropriate ways, teach kids younger about the brain and protecting their brain and why it's so important to not introduce substances to a developing brain. I think many kids will make better choices, but I think we have to get to them way younger before they have, you know, these cell phones and everything else and the whole world's at their fingertips and all these other influences are out there. I feel very passionate about that. So that's what we're working on. That's one thing you and I are absolutely on the same page with, because there's like a, it's like a $45 billion industry. There's 15,000 rehab facilities. There's 4 million people in treatment, but what about the kids? I mean, this is all, this is all for the 35 year old alcoholic housewife or the, or the, you know, the, the overstimulated, you know, type a uh, owner, a company that's drinking, you know, vodkas every night. Um, but what about the kids? And so, yeah, I, I developed something too, but I don't have near the, um, you know, the, the public reception yet, but I came up with this thing called the DSI. It's called the don't start initiative. And it would be a very good compliment to what you're doing. Well, what we're going to have to talk more acronym. <laughs> yeah, I took, I took the acronym ABC for education for kids, make it easier. Remember a stands for awareness. So that's where the kids know that now they're in the situation that mom and dad isn't here and they've, they've been offered a vape. They've been offered a beer. They've been offered to skip school. So now they have to be aware that they're in that spot that their mom and dad talked about for a long time. And then they have to breathe because through meditation, breathing is the breathing's, breathing's the glue. Plus, if you breathe through your nose, you can't talk. So you breathe two times through your nose. That buys you just enough time for your brain cells, your brain neurons to fire, to think of a way to get out of this situation. And then you choose. And I've got this, I've got this um, picture that I drew called Walker Chalk where I've got kids to be thinking instantaneously about the white figure on the chalk drawn with white on the, on the cement drawn with uh, white chalk or you walk. So it's the awareness you breathe, you choose. And then the rest is consequences. And like you said, you know, anything we can do to get kids to think quickly on their feet. And I think, you know, I, I agree with you. We need to show them what it does to your brains and all that. But when they're sitting there in the football game and their buddy of theirs stole a six pack from their dad's refrigerator you know, they're not going to think about all that stuff. And you and I aren't there and they need about 10 seconds to get out of that situation, maybe five. And so mm-hmm. I tried to think through my, I meditate heavily and I try to think what's one part about meditation. That's really great is that's breathing. And if you breathe through your nose, you can't talk. And so if the kid can just take two deep breaths, maybe that two seconds can save their life. Cause all we're trying to do is get them out of the situation. It's all we're mm-hmm. trying to do. You know, just I, get it. I, yeah, I think meditation is an incredible tool as well. And it's, it's helped me tremendously too. Well, I am just so grateful that we've connected in this way. And I'm really looking forward. You're coming to South Dakota in May. So I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person and being part of the Living Undeterred Tour. We will um, leave all of the information for people, as I said, in the show notes. Is there anything else that you want to leave people with, Jeff? I do. Um, I want to remind people that you are going to be a guest on my podcast, 
the Living Undeterred podcast. Uh, and we're going to set that up. So I'm going to reciprocate this, Vic. And now I'm going to put the spotlight on you to talk about your nonprofit and your passions and all that. And then we can help more people that uh, that need to be helped. But um, my podcast can be found on, on Spotify, YouTube, all the platforms that are out there. So uh, again, I, I'm, I'm honored. I'm grateful. I'm humbled like you are every day that we've been kind of, um, kind of picked to be in this position to help people. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, I mean, we are helping ourselves. I mean, what good are we to everybody else around us if you and I aren't in a good place emotionally, right? Right. And I, I do believe together we are stronger. We, we yeah. have to join forces so that we can save lives and save families. I mean, it's such a tough problem, but we're doing what we can do in our little corners of the world, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Iowa and South Dakota are trying to make a difference. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Have a great day. You too. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining me for this latest edition of Grieving Out Loud. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving a positive review. Wishing you faith, hope, and courage.